Chapter 54 Sunday evening proved to be difficult for many of the affected persons. In the case of Ilyev Krasanov, he spent his first night in a cell at HMP Chelmsford. At least he was safe in the cell on his own, but the night was full of a cacophony of prisoners shouting abuse at one another between the bars, only interrupted by guards demanding silence every so often. Ash Quinn didn't sleep. She was on a night shift at the Homewood property, where she was overlooking Carolina Saltis. Yes, slowly but surely, Carolina was beginning to relax around her and Susie Matthews. Matthews had gone home for some well-earned rest, and now it was Quinn's turn to stand guard, alongside the armed police officer at the property. In the case of DC John Kahn, he sat up for a while early Monday morning trying to get his one-year-old daughter to sleep, while the mother, his partner Ruth, tried to get some well-earned rest herself. Kahn walked the living room with a baby in his arms, while he put on his headphones and listened to various interviews. He discovered the team had conducted earlier in the day interviews with a convenience store owner. So far, they had limited results on the car searches and the store owner had not been forthcoming on any information. The investigation still had a long way to go. Jack Milner sat in bed and reread the files he had stored up on Charlie and Blawi. Colin Knapp had come through for him and managed to get a meeting with DS John Mallory for Monday morning. He pushed it back to midday. That way he knew by the time Quinn was home around 9am, give or take an hour, he'd get a chance to grill her on what was happening with Carolina Saltis. He cancelled his usual appointments booked for Monday. And, in the case of DCR John McLaughlin, well, late that evening, on the way home, he once again visited Carol Sharp. He knew it was late in the evening, but he figured it didn't really matter for Carol Sharp anymore. He knew the light had gone out in her life, and clearly felt for the woman. It was probably not best best protocol, but at least a family liaison officer opened door and welcomed him when he turned up at 5 to 12. She noted his attendance in the report and then allowed him to head upstairs to see Carol. Carol was in another deep sleep, again induced by strong sedatives. McLaughlin sat quietly in the far end chair for a while. The chair was propped up near the window while she slept. Some would say, if you looked into the room, he portrayed an almost guardian angel figure as a streetlight partially lit up the bedroom, which otherwise was bathed in darkness. McLaughlin slightly closed his eyes and sat in silence, listening to Carol's breathing. Chapter 55 The Missing Persons Bureau, MPB, was transferred to Soccer, the Serious Organised Crime Agency, in April 2012. Before various organisational changes, the actual Bureau had been headquartered at Scotland Yard. Now, here in 2019, the Bureau was now managed by the NCA, the National Crime Agency, the same body that had Ash Quinn and Amir Amagan on its payroll. The NCA had been established with former fanfares and publicity as the new British FBI. It was there to fight serious crime. The Missing Person Unit itself did not take Missing Persons Report direct. There is actually a defined process. When a person is reported missing, it's filed with a relevant police force. Thereafter, it's investigated by the same officers. Before, if unconcluded, it reaches the MPU and then the MPB. Thereafter, each case is allocated a file number. The first two numbers reflect the year. Hence, Charlie and Blauer's file started with the digits 13, denoting the year 2013, the year she was reported missing. It was followed by a personal reference number. 
2788659. Within the file, the first few categories have been detailed on every case. They always follow the same format. Gender, ace range, ethnicity, height, date found, body or remains, circumstances and eye colour. Followed by the reporting police constabulary and the police officer who filed the actual case. In the case of Shani and Blawi, the date found category still remain blank. That same missing persons database was searched early Monday morning as part of his last task of his shift. The officer in question was serious crime officer from Essex, Paul Entwistle. Paul inputted the data as detailed on the post-mortem report, the same report that was the unidentified Jane Doe, whose body had been pulled headless from Benfleet Creek Sunday morning. His fingers speedily hit the computer and he typed as he went. He filed the search details. He filled in the categories he was looking for. Female, between 20 and 35, black, in brackets, African, close brackets, approximately 5 foot 5 inches. Found October 27, 2019. Location, Benfleet Creek, submerged. Reported to the Serious Crime Division of Essex. See reference DCI John McLaughlin, case officer. State of remains, decapitated. Corpse reveals at post-mortem, broken right ankle. Injury most likely over five years old. Eye colour, brown. And so it was, the search engine went to work. Entwistle knew the search might take a while, so he grabbed his final coffee of the day and he decided to sit it out until he got an answer one way or the other. However, no sooner had he returned to his desk cubicle than he saw he had a hit on his computer. He read the details. Report number 13-CVH01892374. He clicked on the details. Female, age 27, as of 2710-2019, the date of his search. Missing since 2013, then aged 21 years. Reported missing initially by sister, October 2013, and then Mr. J. Milner, November 2013. Black, close brackets, African. See photo number CVH001. Distinguishing missing persons features. Broken right ankle, three places, 1996. Eye colour, brown. Next of kin, Paul Geffier, Belgian national. Father, reporting officer. DCI Colin Knapp, warrant card number 679943, Cambridgeshire Constabulary, December 2013. Surprised, and clicked on the attached PDF and immediately downloaded the full file. Some five minutes later, he went and collected the 22 pages from the printer and brought it back to his desk. There he carefully placed the file on his desk. He turned over the loose-leaf papers and read the name on the missing person. The name was emblazoned in large capital letters on the top of page two. He read the name. City Umblawi. Chapter 56. McLaughlin stirred and awoke just after 7am. He was scrunched in the chair in Carol Sharp's bedroom. Waking up, he rubbed his eyes and got up. His old body ached. Shoulders, neck, back, butt, legs, calves, you name it, it ached. Standing up, he stood and observed Carol Sharp. 
He was still out like a light, sleeping in the bed. He felt slightly embarrassed he was still there. So he stepped out of the room and walked down the stairs. There he was greeted by the family liaison officer. She must have heard him stir upstairs and she offered him a cuppa. He politely declined and left. He needed to be at work by 8am. Navigating through the morning Chelmsford city traffic, he was tempted on two occasions to set off the emergency blues and put the sirens on, but he resisted and followed the rest of the traffic into the city. He parked up in the car park underground, stripped off yesterday's shirt and took a new one from a pack positioned in the back of his boot. He always came prepared for work. It was a force of habit, part of the job. His ex-wife would say she could vouch for that, numerous years of suffering, she called it, married to the job. McLaughlin now just needed an electric razor, which was ensconced in his desk drawer back in the office, and it'd be half decent within the hour. DC Khan ironically met him at the ground floor as the lift proceeded up from the basement towards floor four. Both remained silent. Khan thought his boss looked a bit worse for wear, but he wasn't prepared to say. He thought he'd stay stunned this morning. After all, it was a Monday morning. Some of the things never change in the force. It was not only the attention and dedication to the job, but the also in-house subconscious desire to be a winner, first to get past the winning line with the right information. It was that desire that meant for once Officer Paul Entwistle had stayed back at his desk, and although he checked out for the morning shift, he stayed waiting to see the boss. So when McLaughlin walked in, opened his door, rummaged through his drawers and then started with his shaver, no sooner was he doing this than Entwistle tapped on the opening door and walked in. Behind him, Khan followed with a strong, hot cup of coffee. Sir, I've picked up an interesting hit on our Jane Doe from yesterday. Just came in within the last hour. He placed the folder on McLaughlin's desk. McLaughlin put down the razor, sat down, took the coffee from Khan and beckoned both men to take a seat. So what have we got? Said McLaughlin as he opened the file. He flicked to page two, then three, then four. Entwistle spoke. Victim here, she's been missing since 2013, African woman. No ID in the UK, but her father was interviewed back in, uh, says there, 2014. Uh, looks like she was travelling to the UK, an illegal immigrant. Her sister also went looking for her. That interesting, McLaughlin. Six years ago. Yep, that's about it. So this could be uh, our Jane Doe. Look here, broken ankle. Suggests over the last five to ten years. Yeah, exactly. McLaughlin sat up. What about DNA? Uh, sorry, boss, but it looks like police interviews went no further than the chat with the boss in 2014. I can't find any evidence of DNA being taken from the father. Or if there was, there's nothing noted in the file. I'm going to need to check that. Where's the father live? Belgium. McLaughlin sighed. Okay, so some work to do. We need to corroborate the information. Who was the officer in charge? DCI Colin Knapp, replied the officer. Cambridgeshire Constabulary. I've checked him out already. Looks like he's retired through medical grounds. Uh, but his number two then was the DS John Mallory. John Mallory is now the DI, still with the same force. Excellent, replied McLaughlin. Set me up an appointment with him. I've got this press conference at 10. I'll speak to the team before. With a bit of luck, I can be with him for about ooh, somewhere between midday and one. 
I'll have a drive over there. I'd like to get his take on things. With that, Entwistle picked up the file and left. Interesting, said Khan. This could be a match. Let's not presume anything at the moment, John. We need to cross-match everything. Yes, a strong possibility, but, as we know in this job, nothing is certain until it's certain. With that, Khan left the room. Chapter 57 Situated just before the T-junction of Palmyria Avenue in Westcliff-on-Sea, Mimi's Italian restaurant was perfectly located, located to capture both the townsfolk and the tourists who frequented the area. The beach was a mere two minutes walk away. Step out, turn left, walk across Shoefield Road, and then the Western Esplanade, and there you are, sand beneath your feet. Mimi's had been named after Gino Tamimi's wife, obviously called Mimi. Together they'd built the business up in the 70s into a thriving business for the South End area. But then when their eldest son was diagnosed with cancer in the early 90s, they sold up. Spent their time looking after him and thankfully he recovered. In the meantime, the Turks took over. They'd paid cash. But a fair price. Uzi Mali and his family bought up the area. Firstly with Mimi's and then they did the smart thing. They kept the name and the business together. Italian chefs, Italian waitresses, everything looked Italian, but behind the scenes, it was all Turkish. Then he expanded. First two fish shops, then the last Chinese restaurant, and to add to the mix, several cafe shops down the road. And so within eight years, Azim's Azim's gamble had paid off. He then spent big, and bought the Cliffs Pavilion Amusement Arcade. And sure enough, after good interactions with the mayor and the council, within a year he had a casino licence in the pavilion. He opened up a further cafe and restaurant, and upgraded further. So it was, in 2019, business is booming. And, pleasing for Azim, he was able over the years to bring up his nephews and cousins into the business. Now South End Empire was his. The cash was rolling in. Money from all of Ali and his family's other enterprises, notably car washes, several MOT garages, oh and of course the heroin sales and sex shops, were being nicely filtered through the reputable, reputable cafes, restaurants and the casino. It had all worked well for the last three to four years for Ali. Business was really going well. But he wanted to keep it that way. <laughs> 